Welcome to ETF Working Lunch, an ETF.com podcast in partnership with Women in ETFs. We get together every other week with some of the smartest women in the ETF business and we talk shop. I'm Cynthia Murphy, here with my colleague Heather Bell. Hi, Heather. Hi, And today we are diving into trends in ETF product development with none other than Lois Gregson, Senior ETF Analyst at FactSat. Hi, Lois. Hello. So, Lois, 2020, the year we all want to forget, was actually an amazing year for the ETF industry, not only in terms of asset growth, but also in terms of product innovation. We saw a record number of ETF launches. We also saw a record number of ETF closures. We've seen new players come to market. A lot happened on that front. So, Louis, you have a very interesting background, both as an ETF analyst, but also from your time working with the brokerage and advisory space, which I think should give you a really interesting perspective in product development, not only from an innovation angle, but also from a, a usefulness angle, a practical application perspective. When we look back at the 318 or so ETFs that launched in 2020, the diversity of products is impressive um, and the diversity of, of issuers as well is really impressive. What new ground have we covered in 2020? What stands out to you when it comes to first-of-a-kind market access? Sure. Well, thank you. first, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, as I say, I've been a, a long-time listener, first-time caller, so exciting <laughs> to be here. <laughs> um, but I, as you said, I've, I've been in the industry a long time, so it's always exciting to me to go back over the launches and, and things that have occurred because it's kind of like the new catalog is here. It's like, mm -hmm. what's going on? Um, kind of gets you into the into the different areas and, and exciting to see what's new and, and uh, changing. So, and with ETS, they, they never fail. They seem to uh, react and respond to, you know, what the market's doing and what investors are looking for and uh, such a, a unique product that has that ability to really respond and provide that type of access. So it, it's always exciting. Um, but as I looked over, you know, the 2020 launches, um, you did see some first uh, of a kind and some things kind of stand out. Um, you know, first of all, if you just look at the list, it's you see so many new themes uh, in the market, uh, as I kind of indicated, as the industry, you know, the broader markets kind of entered this new economy and in response to uh, the pandemic and, and how the markets were responding. Uh, ETFs were there. Um, you definitely see that. There's so many different new themes that came into the market. Um, you know, both Direction and iShares uh, launched the work from home uh, types of space or, or ways to gain access to those companies that could benefit from that shift um, as we move to working from home. And um, I look at Global X and uh, the data center REITs and digital infrastructure, you know, their ticker VPN, you know, allowing access, remote access. Um, so some of those companies, again, that's kind of something that shifted, uh, simplifies cloud computing uh, and cybersecurity, obviously, to being important. They offered a product in that space. Um, and then also, you know, um, something from like Round Hill Sports uh, Betting and iGaming. You definitely see that shift of where, um, you know, investors maybe wanted to expand or get some exposure to 
as these things were happening in the market. So again, that's very common. Uh, most of the launches, there are several of the launches were uh, thematic in, in nature. So mm -hmm. exciting yeah. to see. What did you uh, think about the fact that non-transparent ETFs basically rolled out in the middle of all the market uh, chaos? I think it was start of April. Um, right. Do you think that hurt the concept of non-transparent active or um, what was your reaction to that? You're right, Heather. I mean, yeah, another first of its kind, right, that occurred yeah. in 2020, the active non-transparent ETF structure. Um, and as you said, launched kind of in the middle of this change. Um, but it was planned. Or, you know, I mean, this has been talked about for a while. Um, and they've gone through a lot of, you know, um, review and consideration. It was, there was a lot of thought beforehand. And, and it is one of those strategies. And I think one of those things where they're thinking the whole purpose is to be longer term, um, to actively be able to respond without kind of giving away the secret sauce. How will it handle, you know, these types of changes? So, Again, I think it was perfectly um, natural and good to see that even in those kind of conditions, this new look or this new uh, framework is going to be able to work. And it is, it, you're able to set it up and draw assets. I mean, we had 20 roughly different funds launch uh, that year. So 2020 launched 20 um, active non-transparent ETFs and over a billion in assets went into them. Hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, people responded to it, even though I think it was more or less planned. Um, so, and it's, again, it, drawing that much in assets overall, if you're looking at success, obviously, as most asset managers do, what's attracting the assets, you have to see that these were a success and you can see that they're able to deliver, um, you know, this, this structure uh, for investors. So, um, again, another good first of a kind to launch in 2020. And I think they were just seeing the beginnings, um, you know, the, that was Invesco, T. Rowe Price, um, American Century, um, all very successful in, in their launches. And I think as others see how successful those launches have gone, we will see more kind of continue. It's just the beginning. In terms of first of a kind, Lois, in the closure space, when we were talking, uh, you know, shortly before the show, you mentioned the short-lived ETFs, those that lasted only a couple of months or so. They come and go like, just like that. Tell us about that. Why do you think that that has happened? And is that really unusual to see that type of super short-term shelf life for an ETF? It is. It, that it, I, Cynthia, I think you're, you're right. It, we did see kind of two odd uh, things occur, very short term to the top two in terms of uh, shortest length of time from launch uh, to closure. You know, um, we had one uh, source dividend opportunity that just lasted four months, closed in April of 2020. And then North Shore uh, dual share class ETF um, closed just a little over, you know, five months. So, um, and those are the shortest. That's kind of a rare occurrence. So again, kind of first of its kind. You don't see that most people, uh, or I think most issuers, you know, when they're going to launch an ETF, um, even though we've kind of seen it made easier, the process may be a little bit easier now, they're going into it for longer. Obviously, they're thinking that this is going to be um, something that they can deliver for investors that's unique, maybe something different. Um, mm -hmm. 
again, normally it's not uncommon to see maybe after three years. I mean, I think even if you go into any kind of business, they're saying at least factor in three years um, before you really make a determination as to whether you should stay in it or not. Um, so it's very odd to see something this short term, uh, something, you know, obviously um, went different for these two. Um, and again, it could be just a matter of, you know, it, trying to make it in the ETF business is a little bit more um, than what may be anticipated. Maybe easy to get in, but harder to maintain than what was originally thought or planned. So I wonder if with the ETF rule and this whole lowering of the bar for entry, we're going to see more of these trial and error efforts that just don't stick. They pop up and they go. I, I wouldn't expect to see a lot of four-month-old ETFs go off the shelf regularly, but I think a lot of people will try to come in. And we actually hear this a lot. It's easy to come in. It's hard to succeed in ETFs. So I guess we'll, we'll continue to see that happen. <laughs> That's true. That's true with any investment, but, you know, it's always easy to get in. It's the getting out. That's the hard part. So, mm -hmm. um, but in this case, it, it, the two, I mean, I know that these issues, you, you do have a lot of upfront costs and it's a lot of, you know, while it's easier, um, there is still a lot of cost involved with setting that up. So, you know, again, not going in for, you know, having something shorter than at least a three-year time horizon or something, it, it's very difficult. Like I said, that's true. I think for most businesses, I'll tell you that um, mm -hmm. factor three years, at least not uh, making much at all. So. And another first-of-a-kind phenomenon that we saw, um, I guess it's not done yet, but we just, you know, covered is the whole DFA conversion Correct. or planned conversion, mutual funds to ETFs. Uh, there was actually a commodity pool ETF, you pointed out, that converted to a 40-act fund. So just this notion of a conversion from one structure to another. Right. Uh, is that something that, obviously, it's new to the ETF market? Is that something you expect to take hold and in in any specific category? Well, what stands out to you in this conversation? I do think that 2020 was kind of just the beginning of kind of the scene of the light, so to speak, and converting <laughs> or making more believers mm -hmm. <laughs> into ETFs. It's taken this line. It's amazing to me, mm -hmm. you know, for as long as ETFs have been around, there are still people. I mean, I, I've had advisors come up to me, you know, and say, you know, I know you're, you're kind of in this ETF space. That's kind of a fad, right? Mm, <laughs> amazing. Five trillion dollars is not a fad. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, I'm just always surprised, but that that's still the thinking out there. Um, so it, but again, I think more and more people are seeing the light as we've seen, as you have pointed out, DFA um, really now making a commitment to switch some of their mutual funds into the ETF space. And we, we've seen that from other issuers too, um, you know, looking to get in that space. They're really seeing the value of what the ETF structure can provide. And, and that's the goal. They want to be able to continue to service, you know, investors and be able to attract those. And again, we're just scratching the surface. I feel like the door is just opened um, again with it, with this year uh, or with 2020. Um, How much of a game changer was the ETF rule? Because almost all the brand new issuers or um, sponsors of these actively managed ETFs that were like first time entrants into the market in 2020, um, 
almost all of them mentioned that, and DFA cited it as a huge reason for entering um, the ETF market finally because they could fully take advantage of that tax efficiency with right, the custom right. baskets. Well, and I think you're right. I think it is a game changer, though, in that it well, in that it levels the playing field for for everyone in terms of you know some of the. Um, older or the, the issuers that have been in the ETF business for a while um, had a little bit of an advantage in terms of being able to deliver custom baskets, you know, the underlying holdings, um, where it wasn't necessarily all of the underlying holdings, you know, it was kind of a, a, um, a similar basket or, or there were things that they, you know, could disclose, um, you know, to the trading, um, you know, to the trading, the, the, uh, associated persons and, and uh, market makers as such uh, that help with that liquidity of the ETF. So um, the newer issuers didn't have that flexibility. They didn't have that exemption available to them. Um, so now they can, and now they can, it again opens that door for that active and non-transparent structure to really allow those that want to have an active strategy, but not necessarily give away their secrets, um, allows that uh, flexibility. And again, then the trading also helps to support that in terms of, you know, they're just delivering a, a similar type of basket or something that gives a similar investment exposure or profile. Um, so again, I think it allows a lot of smaller issuers than to have that same flexibility and feel comfortable with the ETF structure. It's amazing to me to to go back to to something you said earlier about how early we're in early innings and stuff. And you know, we uh-huh. sit here and we look at the ETF space every single day, um, all year long, and. It's so easy to lose sight of just how new it is to so many people still. Mm-hmm. So to, we look back at 2020 and think, oh, my gosh, look at the massive growth. Um, how is there still people out there who haven't heard of ETFs? But it's it's always amazing to me how there's so much opportunity for growth still. And I think all these massive numbers of launches and innovation just tell you how much space there is to grow, too. It's just it's, it's, the whole thing is phenomenal to me. Well, I think that just highlights really the structure of ETF and how flexible it is. And it truly is that flexibility that makes it superior to other product structures. Um, You know, we are able to respond a lot faster um, in terms of, like I said, as the themes that we saw roll out, you know, in 2020, we can respond as the markets change and investor interests change. We -hmm. can respond and deliver products. So, and I think more and more, it's it's a lot easier, more efficient way to reach that segment of the market. So those that were in something else, maybe it's an SMA, maybe it's a mutual fund, maybe it's a private equity fund, they're starting to think, wait a minute, I do have more flexibility. I can manage it a little bit easier if I use this ETF structure. Um, and I think they're, you know, and we've shown even in, you know, um, you know, maybe market uh, turbulent times or more volatility, the ETF structure has proven itself. We can respond and it holds up and it does work and it's there. So again, I think it's taken that is it, you know, to us that have been in the industry for a long time, we just, okay, we've, we've said this all along, mm-hmm. but it's you know, at each time that helps um, because, you know, we have been skeptical in the past of products that, you know, don't necessarily They're like, Oh, well, this time it's different, you know, is always the, the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so being able to see it, 
in respond, like I said, I think this just opens the door for more believers to kind of come in and, and, and really embrace it and just see the beginning of it. So yeah, I do think it's going to continue that way. From from the perspective of ETFs as a response, um, what do you make of the fact that about 50% of the launches last year were actively managed ETFs? I, I know there's a difference. Heather and I were talking about this earlier, the difference between a true active fund and a rules-based active which isn't really what you would think of as an active portfolio manager there making decisions you don't know are coming. But the point is, is that it's a big number, uh, I think is the highest percentage ever in terms of launches for the ETF industry. So is that an important trend that you see developing? Um, I think it is for other people, you know, in the industry, you know, for me, not as much. I've always had that argument, you know, when, when advisors would maybe have some resistance to using ETFs because they're all passive. Um, and, you know, that's was their thinking was that, you know, ETFs just stood for passive investing and I don't want to be passive and I don't want my clients to pay, you know, anything, you know, my advice to give them just market exposure. But they don't understand that you can take an active approach to passive investing and that's what you're delivering, you know, that take on it. Or you can also have an active approach. If there is something you really believe in and you really feel that that active manager has found um, the right system and in, in what your clients are looking for, great. You now then can provide the efficiency of an ETF, provide that same strategy in an efficient wrapper and deliver that. So I think there's both and there's growth in both areas. So I think it's good to show that the ETF structure works for passive strategy and for active strategy. And I think we're just beginning to see the active. There's just much more opportunity in the active space to come over to the ETF side. What other trends stand out to you, Lois, from launches and closures, as well as the overall growth in ETF products last year? Sure. Now, obviously, we did see a lot of ESG focused. Uh, if you look at the the launches, uh, several, you know, um, especially iShares, you know, the iShares launched uh, 40 funds uh, last year, ETFs last year, um, probably twice as many as anybody else in, in terms of launches. But you, if you look at them, what they've done is basically kind of built out their existing lineup with an ESG uh, screen or an ESG lens, so to speak. Um, and that was common. You saw that with other issues. Well, Vanguard, their one launch that they did in 2020 was an ESG type uh, of a look or, or a lens too. So I do see that continuing. That's a, that's a big focus um, that a lot of the asset managers want to help. And again, as from an advisor perspective, um, we did have that request. Um, it was interesting. It was more from the demographics. You know, some of our older clients were looking for it. They wanted to have more impact um, with their investments. And then also the younger uh, demographics. Uh, the younger ones, you know, felt like they wanted to, you know, have their money working for them in, in a smart way or, or ways that they're interested in uh, more so. Um, so it was just interesting to see that difference in demographics too of who's looking for this, who wants that type of an approach. Um, and I think the asset managers are responding to that, uh, that need and want. Mm -hmm. um, do you think the popularity of ESG um, in the past year may have been almost like a risk management strategy? Because one of the things I've always kind of uh, thought about ESG is that with its, you could call it an agenda, but in a way it is 
avoiding things like the lawsuits of the future, um, you know, by focusing on environments and environmental causes and on um, governance factors and sustainability, that kind of thing. Do you think this is maybe possibly a sort of risk management strategy in a year where risk was a huge topic for everyone? That's, Heather, I think it's interesting. I mean, that's a, that's a thought. Um, I know in working with clients and it, just from my experience in, in terms of when I'm working with a client and they say they want this kind of ESG focus or they want to have more impact, it's been more of they want to be heard. Gotcha. They want to have you know, to invest align, want their investments to align with things that are important to them. Mm-hmm. And they have found a way that to voice it is to put your dollars behind it, of course, but then to, that's their way of de- doing it. That's their way of connecting. And that's their way of saying, here's what is important to me. Um, so it was more of an individual um, basis uh, that I saw it, again, from an investor's point of view. I think asset managers want to respond by that by also saying, look, we're taking an active role. Um, we're allowing or providing product that allows investors to you know, have their voices heard if they choose. Um, so I think it's interesting. I think it's just more or less about being heard and being able to express it and have some kind of impact. Cool. Should we dive into closures? Closures aren't as sure. fun to talk about, but I think they can be a, an interesting, uh, you know, measure of the state of the industry. Um, I know, Lois, you've said that um, overall it's a it's a healthy exercise. I've heard many times people say it's a sign of maturity. Closures are good, but you also say it's not necessarily great for investors. So. Tell us your perspective on a record number of ETF closures in 2020. Sure, sure. I do. I I really do support you know those um, issuers that put careful thought into the products that they're launching. Launching, um, you know, ones that uh, really worry more about the stickiness. Um, you know, will investors stay with the strategy or stay with that type of a investment? Um, you know, if it's a theme, is it a long-term theme? Is it something that will continue um, more than, you know, just a, a year or two um, before it's gone? So in results and then closing a product. Um, because, yeah, you do hear that often. I, and again, I've heard a lot of issuers say, oh, it's healthy and everything to have closures of funds. And, and that's true and it, to a certain extent. Um, and it is the industry maturing. Great. But for investors, if you're sitting in a fund that's going to close, you get frustrated or you are frustrated, you know, because here, obviously there is some kind of an investment theme that you were looking to or investment strategy or, or area of the market you were looking to capture with this ETF. That's why you got in. There's a reason you got into it. Now it's closing. Okay. That does happen. Mm-hmm. But what really happens if you go through the closure process? I mean, there, I did have a client and I guess this is maybe one of those things like a hot stove, you know, you do it once, you, you don't do it twice. Um, but if you got into a, a fund that was closing, um, for whatever reason, they were determined to stay in it past the close date. So what happens The you know, the issuer announced this fund's going to close in two weeks, you know, last day of trading. Here's the last day for creations and redemptions. Here's the last day of trading and we'll liquidate, you know, at a certain date 
past that. So typically, maybe it's a week or two weeks after the last day of trading, you see they'll have a liquidation date. Ensure then the uh, shareholders that kind of waited through, um, you know, through the whole closure process will kind of net some kind of, of uh, their assets back to them based off their shares and, and uh, the price. But what they don't know is if it's an issuer that maybe they're getting out of the ETF business, and that's my hesitation right now, as we saw ETF rules in place, right? It's going to be mm-hmm. easier for smaller issuers to get into the ETF industry. Great. But will they stay committed? And that's mm-hmm. that does make a difference because if it's an issuer that let's say they had one ETF or two ETFs and they decide you know what this isn't really money making for us or we're not um, getting the assets we thought we're going to close up. If shareholders are left in those funds through the liquidation process, the issuer has the right to deduct you know all the legal fees, um, everything that it costs to unwind the trust. They can deduct that from the NAV before they release those funds to the shareholders. Wow. Mm-hmm. They get kind of holding the bag. And there wasn't, a, I mean, I remember again, like I said, a, a client um, that got burnt. They stayed in it. They were determined to stay in it through the closure process. The liquidation date continued to be put off each month it was almost a year went by before their assets, the, the cash value was returned to them. I mean, it was a unique situation. Normally doesn't happen that way. That's extreme. But again, as I said, burnt once, you're not going to burn me twice. I mean, every month that client would call me and I'd warn them ahead of time, look, this still hasn't settled. The liquidation has been pushed off. You know, they're unwinding their business. Um, there, there's some legal issues. It, it's not on your statement yet. He would call anyway when he got a statement. It's not on there. I'm like, mm-hmm. I got, and what happens, what the client sees, because there's no market for the shares and for compliance and legal issues, if you're at a brokerage firm, that line item on their statement goes to zero. Mm-hmm. So then what happens? Your portfolio looks like you have a huge loss, which in theory you do because there is no market for those shares. Mm-hmm. Okay. They can't take it off the statement, obviously, for, again, legal or compliance reason. It has to stay on there. So you're always looking at performance numbers that are off. You know, it, your cost basis then kind of gets screwed up as well. Um, you just don't know what the value of those shares are until that actually goes through the process. So, again, I'm very hesitant. Um you know, for the from the investor's point of view, to actually ride through a closure. Um, so my only kind of advice, you know, when I was working with clients, when it's announced an ETF or ETN is going to close and they have a last day of trading, you have to think real hard. What was your reason for getting into that particular position? It probably no longer exists, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, that closure is going to go away. So there really isn't an advantage to staying in it. So you might want to think about that. I mean, ideally, I mean, I was always advising them to get out really before this last day of trading um, just to make it easier. And again, now it's not as much of an issue because most ETFs, depending on what platform you're on, a lot of them can be traded for free. So there are commissions involved. Um, And it's really just kind of another way to to look at what what exposure do you want to move to now? There is usually another product that has uh, served that purpose. What's fascinating to me about this conversation is that we often complain about this notion that you shouldn't invest in an ETF that doesn't have a three-year life record, a three-year life track record. 
So we say that's something we inherited from the mutual fund space. It's an outdated notion. And ETF investors know better. They're much more willing to dive into new things. But the flip side of this conversation is that startup risk is a real risk in ETF, sounds like. If you go with a brand new issuer and a brand new product, the issue of commitment comes into play. So it's fascinating how maybe there is some ground, there is a case to be made for looking for a well-established brand or a longer track record. This is a tough one. It's a hard one because we did see, again, with a lot of the launches this year, we do see a lot. We we saw a 20% increase in the number of brands that are out there. That means a lot of new issuers entering the space. And you can't go in, you know, assuming that's all bad, but you do have to be aware of that, mm-hmm. you know, so, you know, to respond, if they decide they're going to close or liquidate a fund, I would be quick to respond to an issuer that maybe doesn't have a, a deep lineup or, or deep investment in the ETF industry or, you know, staying in this. So um, I just think we'll, we'll see more of that. We will. Um, is it is the takeaway just that you should be monitoring assets under management? Who's acquiring what firms? Because there were some sizable ETFs, I believe, that were shut down by Invesco. Right. Um, like, what can investors do to avoid getting kind of burned in a closure that they didn't expect? Well, again, that's where the issuer does pay off. I mean, Invesco is in the ETF industry. I mean, they're staying in it. It's not like they just had one or two funds and they were closing those up and going to be out of the industry. Um, so yeah. the reputation stays with you. If you're going to be in the industry and you're going to be closing some funds. Now, Invesco did, as you said, a lot of acquisitions. And I think they spent um, the first quarter of 2020 really kind of um, kind of streamlining their lineup and, and really trying trying to make a more robust lineup, uh, maybe reducing some overlaps and things like that. And um, so, I, you know, I, I, I commend them for, for doing that. And, and closures were necessary um, for them to achieve that. So you have to in certain situations. Yeah. And again, though, because they're staying in the industry and that does kind of bode against on their reputation, their, their best objective then is to use those shareholders that may be in the funds that were closing, direct them into other products. And that's, if you looked at what they closed, there was usually another product that they offered in their lineup that in shareholders would maybe be interested in switching to. Yeah. So I think they did. I think they did look at that and maybe direct them. And they, they do look to minimize um, the impact on the investor when they make those closures. So again, closures just, as a statement, is not necessarily a bad thing, but you do have to take a, into consideration the investor's point of view. What impact will that have on those shareholders in that fund when you close it? So, and I think it, we kind of, I Cynthia mentioned it earlier, we did have a first time where commodity pool um, structure converted into a 40 act fund. Um, Wisdom Tree just did this right before the holidays. They uh, switched, it was the, um, a wisdom tree enhanced commodity strategy um, fund that um, now is trading as a 40 act fund. First time we ever saw that do that. Shareholders have been in that fund for 13 years. And for, I think for tax purposes, I mean, they did change obviously that from a commodity pool trust to the 40 act fund. So it is a change. Um, it is being run differently at different kind of approach. Um, it's actively managed now where it was an index tracking. So a lot of changes going on to it and it was good for investors in terms of not having to 
close out of the old fund, close out of the commodity pool. So uh, pool, I'm sorry, um, out of the commodity pool, sell them out, and then only to reestablish in the new, because it provided really the same exposure. It's broad commodity exposure, so it's something they probably still wanted to maintain, and it wasn't a tax consequences for them to make that shift or make that change. Um, but I think you know, they did something a little bit. I think we need to pay attention to, especially as if more mutual funds are coming in and more uh, what we say conversions are happening. Um, we do pay need to pay attention to inception date because it seems to be there is some um, some play there in, in what issuers are putting on their websites. Um, I've seen issuers kind of go back if they launch an ETF but maybe it wasn't available or the strategy was available in a mutual fund or an SMA. Mm. They'll go back and put inception date like three years ago or five years ago. Oh, wow. You know, inception date leaves a lot to open. I, I just, at Wisdom Tree, as we were just talking about, I noticed on their website um, as they change this um, commodity pool to the 40 Act fund, they're using the new inception date, you know, so December of 2020, where Actually, it's been open, you know, 13 years. So <laughs> shareholders are, were still in here. It was good, again, like I said, good for them to just not have the tax consequences, but they don't get to restart their holding period or their cost basis or any of that. So hmm. you know, it's something yeah, I think uh, going forward, we have to pay more attention to the, that inception date because um, I think we will see more kind of play with that. So, Lois, before we, we wrap up, I just wanted to quickly look forward a little bit um, as far as expectations for, you know, what we should expect to see in terms of product development in the ETF space. We've talked about uh, you expect to see more conversions to the ETF structure, you more ESG funds, more thematic funds, uh, maybe a continuation of uh, the growth of number of issuers trying out the market. Uh, what, what in your mind is, you know, will succeed in 2021? I still think it comes back down to the original, what you always needed. You know, you need an, an investment strategy or a process or a niche that's beneficial to investors, you know, give investors what they want or what they need. Um, that's going to be successful. Make it easy to explain. Um, something that an advisor, you know, only takes a little bit to explain. If it's more complicated, complex, it just has a harder time um, getting it onto the platforms and, and into um, client portfolios. Um, make sure it delivers what's promised. Um, that's going to be successful. And then also, you know, helps to have a cool ticker. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, as, mm -hmm. as I looked at, um, you know, some of the launches that iShares did, one of the best things I think they do is they do put careful thought into the tickers that are used. Um, and I think a lot of those issuers that have been in the business know that that does matter. Um, you know, as I said, they, they had some core ETFs that I used in client portfolios, you know, the IVV, the IJR, IJH. Um, what they did, they used the same core exposure, but maybe put an ESG lens on it and they just tweak the ticker so that you still think of the same ticker, but you just put, you know, an X on the, on the beginning, um, which is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. So XVB, you know, those come to mind as you're sitting there working with clients, what are the tickers? And if a client came to me and they said, you know, I have the core portfolio, but now I really want to take an ESG approach or, or look at these investments that comes to mind. It does. It's like, Oh, okay, well we can, we can do that pretty easily. Mm-hmm. So again, the same thing holds true. They'll deliver, you know, what, what investors want, make it easy for them, um, and then deliver on that promise and then make it easy for me to remember. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's awesome. <laughs> well, I think we will have to to wrap it up and leave it at there. Um, Lois, thanks so much for joining us. This was fascinating. Oh, it's a pleasure. My pleasure. For more episodes, uh, folks, check out ETF.com. Also, as a quick note, we are running a, a really short survey on our website uh, on the ETF Working Lunch page uh, just to know what you think about the podcast. So if you have a minute, please check it out and answer a couple questions. For more information on how to get involved with women in ETFs, check out womeninetfs.com. And please feel free to reach out to us at etfworkinglunch at etf.com at any time with topic ideas, comments, suggestions, um, anything. On behalf of Heather and myself, thanks for listening today, and we'll see you next time.